0: Welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Centre for Army Leadership Podcast with me, Lieutenant Colonel Langley Sharp. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome today's guest, Mr Mark Laherty. Mark has been involved with the media, information and strategic communications for more than five decades, both as a journalist and within a variety of roles with NATO. His experience covers all levels, from the political and strategic to the front lines of major operations. Within NATO, he was a leading driver for the development of STRATCOM, strategic communications, often nicknamed Mr. STRATCOM. In a career there that spans over 20 years, he held a number of key roles. Special advisor to the Secretary-General of NATO, Lord Robertson, NATO's deputy spokesman, and later NATO's spokesman in Afghanistan, three tours of Afghanistan, chief of strategic communications at SHAPE, and latterly director of communications division, also at SHAPE. Before this, Mark enjoyed 22 years in journalism, mostly in the BBC as an editor, producer, and reporter. This included from 1989, 11 years as a BBC defence correspondent, where he reported from the front lines of most major conflicts of the 1990s. He is an Associate Fellow at the King's Centre for Strategic Communications, King's College, London, an Honorary Fellow at the University of Exeter's Strategy and Security Institute, and a Visiting Fellow in Defence and Security at Cranfield University. Mark, a very good morning and a warm welcome to the Carl Podcast, and thank you very much indeed for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us today. Thank you. Um, for those familiar with our format, they will know we like to warm our guests up with some easy questions about uh, about the individual themselves and you are no exception. So um, if we can uh, cast back to your youth, uh, looking back to your early years growing up, how would you describe that period of your life and, and who shaped you as the person you are today?
1: Uh, I would say I had a lucky youth. Um, first of all, I'm Cornish, so I was born in Galtown County. Um <laughs> But actually more personally, it was a place which was good for children, friendly, local, place you could connect, and we'll discuss that later. I also had a very stable family. Um, and therefore I was safe and secure as I was brought up. My father was a huge influence on me. He was a policeman. He had a um, very strong, maybe even rigid sense of values which um, he instilled on me, but also a person who wouldn't give in, who, who, who lived by the values. So a big lesson was that sometimes when it's uncomfortable, you keep driving on, which my dad would do. Um, my mother was a much more intuitive person, um, and therefore she was a kinder person. And um, therefore I was a very lucky youth. Um, I went to a grammar school, which was extremely suited to me. Um, I got extremely well-educated, and frankly, I consider myself a very lucky person um, in terms of my youth. I had my problems like anyone else, but overall, you know, I have very little to complain about. Um, Those two influenced me, but I was also born in the shadow of the Second World War. My father was um, in bomber command. My grandfather was in the Royal Navy and won a Distinguished Service Medal, Um, I was brought up very much in that context so I consider myself, uh, my values, my outlooks very influenced by the Second World War and of course the British narrative of the Second World War is very strong and frankly it's very strong in me and so a lot of what I consider to be important I would say were very much Second World War values.
0: And I guess a sense of service and duty there as well given your the father being a policeman and, um, and and the military history in your family, very much so. He in fact
1: he became a policeman. He'd been an apprentice shipwright, and after the war, he wanted to do something which maintained that sense of duty and service, um, and that's why he became a policeman. Um, so it really was something which which influenced me hugely, uh, and I think the whole society still had that sense of duty and service, and also things weren't necessarily going to be easy. Um, It's very easy to say now that we live in a society where there's a lot of expectations. Um, There weren't the same expectations then, but but there was also a sense that they deserve something because they had done something, Mm. Uh, and they certainly had. So I I feel very much in that sense a a Second World War baby.
0: And you mentioned your education there, and you said you were well-educated growing up, and and I guess that that thirst for knowledge and understanding has, has continued through your life. And I know you're an avid student of both history and, and politics. How do you think that, that uh, has really shaped you as a strategic communicator?
1: I think it shaped me enormously. Maybe it was my education, maybe it's just me or whatever, but I, I'm still learning. I'm, and I'm 65 um, and we'll return to this. But to me, the fact your age doesn't stop you learning, Adapting to new things, taking in new books, uh, and moving with the times. And I was just, I was brought up to not to learn facts, but to learn how to use facts. And I went to university in the same sense. So I had an extremely fortunate upbringing in that respect. So I am a lifelong learner in history. History is stories, and we'll be talking later, I think, about narrative. And and history is actually a whole set of narratives. Mm. um, And it's all about stories. So if you like, my political opinions, my views of society were driven by a narrative drive. And, of course, identity. I'm British, and I feel very British, and I imbibe British history. uh, And I've learned to unimbibe some of it because obviously it wasn't always um let's say it was biased Mm -hmm. and i learned over time to be aware of the bias and to account for it um but also to be aware that everybody has those biases and in one sense they're necessary because it's a sense of identity um if you're not biased then where is your culture where is your sense of identity the thing is you should value above others that's really interesting. I think any, any
0: true professional
1: would understand the value
0: of that continuous learning journey, but also I guess the ability of the humility to unlearn in certain circumstances as well as, as, as the world changes around you. And I guess your biases and understanding your biases and being willing to change your mindset is, is one of those unlearning experiences. Absolutely,
1: I would say that I'm, a, I'm as British as I used to be. But I'm also a rather more humble Brit than I used to be because Britain needs a little bit of humility.
0: Turning to your work as a journalist, then, of which um, you, you've got ex- extensive experience through your through your early parts of your career, you worked at the BBC initially as a producer and then as a defence correspondent covering the Gulf War, Bosnia, and of course Kosovo in the 1990s. So, what lessons then did you learn from these conflicts as a journalist,
1: but also as a communicator? Um. Well, there were very different conflicts over time. And what I was, I was a person who transitioned. I was, my period, I was in a transition from, if you like, a fairly traditional form of reporting to a much more emotional, I was there form of reporting. So when I first was doing, being a defense correspondent, it was very much about analysis of the facts, reporting what was there. And Bosnia in particular, saw the rise of what I would call emotional Me Too journalism. The most famous journalists in that period were those who who gave over their emotional experience. In my view, frankly, too much in many cases. But they also gave a different aspect of war which had perhaps not been covered, which is the sense that war is an emotional thing. It's not a sit-rep. It's not, you know, we may need to turn things into facts and figures in order to brief ourselves the sit rep for the general in the morning. But to understand war, you need to understand emotion as well as facts. And what you saw was this transition. And I think it's probably gone too far because very often, you know everything, how the reporter's feeling, and you still don't know what the hell is happening. I'm probably lean rather more to the analytical side. But I became very aware that I needed to give a sense of place and a sense of feel and the atmosphere. Because unless you understand the atmosphere, you don't understand the conflict. And a lot of wars, Bosnia in particular, are completely inexplicable unless you understand people and their emotions. So you've got to get the balance between the two. And then you, at the same time, you have this transition moving from a one report two reports three reports a day to continuous reporting uh, and the gulf war was really the bbc's and other people's move into that area you had cnn around the clock you had um the bbc was doing rolling news it devoted one of its channels and i was on that all the time now kosovo that followed through so i was doing 20 30 reports a day at some point And that changed the nature of the reporting. It's much harder to get your facts right, less time to check things, more rumors. And at the same time, you moved into the area where it almost became easier to fake it. So when I did the Gulf War, the internet really wasn't operative. And as a result, if you didn't know how to find it out personally, you were stuffed. Um, and as a defense correspondent in the Gulf War, I, used, I was in a hugely advantageous position because very few facts were enough for me to work out quite big conclusions on the basis of my knowledge of defense. And I knew a lot about defense. By the time you got to Kosovo and beyond, what you're finding is that you can Google it, finding people who, what does this mean? They just check Google. Um, It isn't real expertise. So there's a lot of fake expertise out there now. It changed an awful lot, but the job became much harder, definitely much harder. I mean, I don't want to make it seem like I was brilliant and now all the new ones are rubbish because it's just much harder. There's much more rumor. There is much more ability for people to reach in. It's become an incredibly difficult job and it was, (laughs) good Lord, it was never easy. And that sense I think reporting is much more difficult than it used to be.
0: The advances in technology and communication really driving changes in the way journalists reported. I'm sorry. Uh, But I I guess in the 1990s journalism was still the, the purview of journalists whereas now advancing 20 plus years on everyone has the ability to become a journalist however credible or not
1: that no, that's absolutely right, and I'm, I didn't really deal with that because, of course, I moved to NATO in 2000, um, and really <clears throat> the citizen journalism, which is a very grand phrase from people who are usually speaking a load of rubbish, um, hadn't taken off. So what, the wars I covered as a journalist, I was still the primary source of information for most people, and other people couldn't intervene. As a strategic communicator working for NATO, now uh, every, you know, if you've got a smartphone, you're in. Yeah. Uh, and so it's become more difficult all around. What, what's interesting though is that to a large extent, the you have influencers and the journalists are still big influencers. So you're getting people commenting, but where are they getting their information from? Now, at one level, it is the you know the the, the the fake news area the really fake news the, mm-hmm. the disinformation the misinformation but very often it's people they trust and that's actually a lot of journalists people still trust um and then you've got but sourcing has become much more difficult and is much more difficult to be authoritative when you don't have the time to find out what's really going on uh, and that that's and that's a much more difficult thing for people to do now. But journalists are still incredibly important because most people still want to get it right. And journalists are people who, if they try hard enough, can still get it right.
0: And I guess the challenge there is, for mainstream journalists, so to speak, is, is, is maintaining that credibility. You, you, it sounds like you're, they're, they're facing significant pressures in order to get the, get the right facts, get the truth. But if they, if they don't, so they're, they're, they're up against time, but they're also up against uh, the importance of, of remaining credible and le- legitimate.
1: It, absolutely. It's a balance. The point is that um, do you want to be first or do you want to be right? Mm. Um, and the answer to that is there isn't one or the other. Because, you know, as Churchill said, you know, the, a lie has gone round the world before the truth has got its, got its boots on. Mm. And Jonathan Swift had another. You know, that's going back 400 years about how a quick lie, quick misinformation will gain hold and then the right information won't correct it. So you you get people who sort of say you've got to be it's better to be right than first. But the truth of the matter is, is you really have to compromise on both. You have to find the sweet spot. Because if you are right after four hours, and the wrong has been going around for four hours, you're wasting your time, it's too late. So the dilemma is not, shall I be first, or shall I be right? The dilemma is you've got to be quick, or you're dead. Mm. And that's a massive dilemma, it's a dilemma for journalists, it's a dilemma for us as strategic communicators working for NATO or the UK or whatever. So on that, let's move on to your, your time now as
0: a strategic communicator, you say, for NATO and SHAPE. Um, before we get into the detail, would you mind giving our listeners who aren't familiar with the concept of STRATCOM or strategic communications a brief overview on, on what it is and, and why it's so important for not just for world leaders and uh, 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 political leaders, but in, industry leaders as well?
1: Well, the first thing to say, of course, is that communication has always been important. There's um, a much quoted thing from Napoleon about, you know, um, some favorable newspapers are more to be valued than 10,000 payments. So there's nothing new in communications matter. It's just it matters more. Um, in the nature of technology, communications has changed to become more important, you know, going from the, the telegraph to radio TV to um, the Internet now. So communications is not new. Strategic communications is a evolutionary thing which tries to recognize the importance of communications in the current environment and to combine all the communication elements, which in military terms is public affairs, psychological operations, informed, combine them together, integrate them with every other line of effort, and then make a difference. Mm -hmm. So at one level, we all know that air power is important, but we don't think it's the only thing that matters. We have to integrate it with sea power and land power and now cyber. Well, information is no different. It is a line of effort. And traditionally, what tended to happen was we split up the effort between science and public affairs and so on, and we made it relatively minor and as an afterthought. What strategic communications does is it recognizes that it is an incredibly important line of effort. It needs to be integrated into policy planning and outcomes from the beginning. It then needs to be integrated as part of everything you do. And then sometimes it's the most important thing you're doing. And arguably, at the moment, It is the most important, because in the hybrid environment, we're not dropping bombs, Mm -hmm. we're not firing shells from warships, and we're not going over the top. So how are we influencing events? Well, we're influencing through information. And the Russians recognized this. So what we saw in NATO and other people was that the role of information was being badly handled, was too minor and needed therefore to be made integral, more effective, and as part of the overarching thing. You cannot win without information on your side. Sun Tzu knew this, Aristotle knew this. And we tend to have a more concrete, kinetic view of the world. Can I feel it? If I can't feel it, it doesn't matter. But that's not how people operate. People don't operate on concrete things, they operate on feelings, emotions. And so strategic communications is a systematic approach to incorporating communication into our overall effect. So do you think that uh,
0: political masters and uh, or political leaders and military leaders understand the importance of strategic communications in information more broadly? You, you, I mean, as you say, it's almost it's almost the primary mechanism for influencing adversaries' will from a military perspective. Do you, do you think that's well understood now?
1: Some do and some don't. I think a lot of people pay lip service to it and a lot of people think they give it the importance, but then when it comes to operations, they talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. Mm. And I believe that You know, the evidence is that intellectually the argument for Stratcom has probably been won, but the implementation side of it hasn't. And if we take the UK as an example, um, we still, and I don't mean this word pejoratively, we still routinely have amateurs running our strategic communications effort. Mm -hmm. People who've done one or two weeks training or no training have no experience at all. Um, you know, we would never put somebody like me in charge of an armored brigade. But you would take somebody who's in charge of an armored brigade and says your next posting is to run information. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I don't want to be crude, but whiskey of Tango of Foxtrot, um, and we do this absolutely routinely. That people who are motivated, competent, completely inexperienced, run most of our strategic communication efforts. Mm -hmm. Most people who do it, do it for one tour and never do it again. Um, The resourcing is woeful. The amount of effort we put into information environment assessments is minimal compared to the need. The processes and procedures, and the Army Joint Doctrine Note is very good in this, or the joint doctrine note, so the mod's joint is very good in this but its implementation isn't happening so i think that the intellectual argument is one the implementation argument we are still on the lower foothills when it comes to our political leaders in terms of their domestic politics yeah they understand it in terms of foreign policy i'm not so sure because Again, they're very orientated to what will sell in their constituency. Mm -hmm. It's actually much more important that we work out what the hell will sell in Singapore or somewhere like that. So that intellectual argument, that implementation, there's a huge disconnect and it needs to be fixed.
0: Well, perhaps we'll come back to some of the foreign, foreign policy implications um, a little bit later. But uh, returning to your own experiences, um, in two thousand and one, you became Lord Robertson's personal envoy to Skopje, and what was what is now North Macedonia. And at the time, Lord Robertson was NATO's Secretary General, and he was he was determined to to prevent genocide in in, in North Macedonia. Well, what was your role as his personal envoy, and what lessons can be drawn from Lord Robertson's commitment and and his leadership?
1: Well, I think. My initial role in uh, North Macedonia was as an advisor to President um, Tchaikovsky, who was, um, who was complaining that he was losing the strategic communications battle. He was basically saying his public affairs, he was getting whacked, which was indeed true. Um, so I was sent out initially for a couple of weeks to give him some advice. And try and help set up some repo, some way forward. In fact, I ended up being there for almost six months. So I became a I became his advisor. Um, I also became more of a strategic advisor, um, and I was also very much liaison with the um, with the NATO people. But I also ended up having a quieter role, liaising with the. NLA, the um, in effect, the insurgent movement mm-hmm. to try and bring them together. So, and throughout that conflict, the information battle was absolutely crucial because the ethnic Macedonians were scared rigid of the Albanians. They had an extremely active information campaign from hardliners, some of who went, ended up in The Hague. And they were basically scaring the hell out of them by fake news, misinformation, disinformation, at one stage, creating almost a situation for a coup. So the information side of that was important, was vital. Um, What I also did though was, I was de facto a policy advisor um, and liaison. The biggest thing that came out was when you have a crisis like that you need to focus on it we were very lucky in that north macedonia the the crisis of of that year was the biggest foreign policy story of that year until 9 11. up to that point it was the main thing senior people were talking about the main thing they were worrying about the main thing that they were being given information about as a result The insights we had and the engagement we had was fantastic. So George Robertson was in regular contact with all the key players. So when we came to take hard decisions, we had people at the top who were engaged and informed and able to make hard decisions, including sometimes quite tactical. And I think one of the most important things that came out of that is the number of mistakes I've seen in other places in the world, which basically come from ignorance and lack of top level focus. So you feel that, see, the staffers are tearing their hairs out, trying to get taken seriously, saying one phone call from somebody who matters will make a difference. And that phone call comes too late. Um, We also learned about finding the right people to liaise with and working with them. Delegating authority, mission command to people on the spot. Don't micromanage them because you have tactical things happening with strategic significance. So it's a whole series of lessons that came out of that. But Lord Robertson's personal engagement facilitated almost all of that. And
0: advising leaders at a time of crisis, um, such as the Burin Civil War in North Macedonia, carries clearly a, a high level of responsibility and, and pressure. So what, what are your recommendations on how an advisor can
1: best advise their respective leaders learning from that experience? Well, the first thing you've got to do is take yourself at the game. Advisors are always teetering on the edge of arrogance. It's a fact. An advisor has to remember they're an advisor. The second thing an advisor needs to remember is they're not there to tell the bosses what they want to hear. They're there to tell the bosses what they need to hear. So a good advisor has considerable moral courage. I mean, most of my life, I've been an advisor um, at NATO. And I have watched so many people Senior generals not speak truth to power because they want to go along with the consensus because it's easier to say yes than no. It's just easier to let it happen. Not my problem. An advisor needs humility and they need moral courage because they must tell the boss the truth. And if the boss doesn't like the truth, you tell them again. And if the boss still doesn't like it, you tell them until they tell you to leave that's your job you've also got to remember that the person who carries the can is the boss the can you carry is to give them the best advice you can including what they need to know uh, rather than what they want to know and then the other one is work hard get out there all the basic things but moral courage and humility and you talk about leaders not wanting to i guess rock the boat
0: Um, whether that's for personal reasons or or any other reasons. Do you think that's also
1: a result of groupthink as well? Groupthink is there. Um, I mean, the thing is these things that you, you can kind of stovepipe these things. Um, Groupthink is the brother of not wanting to rock the boat. And then you can add that a system which doesn't encourage people to be independent does your system train and encourage people to speak up? And you're getting very much into the leadership issues now, is that what are the consequences of speaking up? The group thing, to a degree, you can train. That's a process. You you can set up processes and procedures like red teams and things like uh, like that, that can challenge group things. In almost every disaster I've seen, there's actually not been any shortage of people saying, oh, I'm a bit worried about this. It's them being listened to. It's very rare that you, you, you see a disaster which significant people didn't predict there was a big problem, but they weren't listened to. Whether it is the Grenfell Towers, whether it's the January six thing, and if you read stuff that's happening there, January 6th was entirely predictable. Some of them are harder. 9-11 was harder. But most of the disasters I see were predicted and became disasters because the warning signals were not listened to. So the groupthink thing is a big problem, but the system that allows people not just to speak up, but when they speak up, to actually be taken seriously. When I was in NATO, towards the end of my time in NATO, we had an exercise which was going quite badly wrong, where an individual was basically distorting the direction of the exercise. And through that person's strength of will, not their rank, but through their just bullet-headed determination, they were were driving it through. I was, I had a, there was a big meeting, Two stars, one stars. I was the only person who said, let's not do this. This is wrong. And people I had spoken to before the meeting agreed with me. They didn't speak up at the meeting. A couple apologized after the meeting and said, I didn't speak up. People who were senior to me came up afterwards and said, you're right. There is a serious problem in our systems, with people who will not speak up. And when you go through disasters, you always see the same thing. So training our leadership to respectfully, forcefully speak up, and this goes right to the top. I will, I will say it, this is not half colonels not speaking up. This is two-star and three-star generals who won't rock the boat, and I've seen it. Uh, that's really interesting, and, and a very live conversation
0: in the army, as you'd expect at the, at the moment, a very hierarchical organisation, although clearly these sort of issues are not uh, bespoke to, to, to just the army or indeed the military, but I think the nature of hierarchical organisations, they create those, in some instances, unconscious um, bias or sort of institutional structural um, uh, barriers uh, as a result, um, so a very topical conversation, um, and what I think a number of people in the, in the army would recognise. Moving on, you've often spoken about the need to have a shared narrative and you've spoken at the beginning about the importance of narratives uh, in order to bring people together and to to build resilience. So how important is a narrative for leaders and how can they use narrative to inspire
1: and unite their teams? I think a narrative is absolutely fundamental. Um, Daniel Kahneman, who is the person who wrote thinking fast and slow and i think is you know uh, a person who almost everybody knows about he was the person he said you know the quote i use from him is that and i've got it here just to make sure i get it exactly right no one ever made a decision because of a number they need a story mm-hmm. now this is a man who got his Nobel Prize on behavioral economics. People need stories. And when you actually look at the nature of how we do things, NATO has actually said this in that one of our primary documents says sustainable support for any institutional campaign is founded on both logic and instinct. NATO's core narrative must resonate with its audiences and its operations, missions, and activities must be consistent with that narrative. Now, I'm sure many of you will have read a book, um, many of your audience, by Emile Simpson, called War From the Ground Up. If they haven't, then I recommend it. He talked about how the strategist in war has to combine the physical and the perceived to draw a sharp distinction between strategy and strategic narrative is misguided. Strategic narrative is strategy expressed in narrative form. And he's right. And the US manual on counterinsurgency highlights this. It says a narrative is an organizational scheme expressed in story form. And this goes back is that long before we could read or write, We used to tell each other stories to give it our identity, help us remember things, help us have a united sense of what we were and where we were going. So if you want to inspire somebody, you give them a story. And if you take the British Army as an example, look at our regimental history. How do we take people from their family, mum and dad, and put them in a fighting unit where they will be asked to do extraordinary things is we give them another family and how do we give them another family we give them a narrative the story of our regiment so we are living narratives all of the time and if you want somebody to do something you must find a way to make it sticky and resonant and that's a narrative that's a story and I was knowing this question would come up because of my obsession with narrative. I've got two different quotes for you here, which don't, you do not need to agree with people saying them, but people live by narrative, human beings are creatures of the imagination. That's Boris Johnson. He based the Brexit debate on a narrative that the country needed Resonate, it needed rebooting, it needed to restore itself to its past glories. Call it what you will, agree or disagree, it's irrelevant. Boris Johnson's got where he is because human beings are creatures of the imagination. Well, let me give you another example. And this one may seem odd, but it's not when you think about it. Meghan Markle. Why have Meghan and Harry got such a grip? Well, Meghan Markle, in her interview with Oprah Winfrey got it. She said, Life is about storytelling, right? About the stories we tell ourselves, the stories we're told, what we buy into. So, all around us, there are examples of people who are influencing because they understand the power of narrative. So, you want to persuade somebody, tell them a story that makes them sing and dance. So it is absolutely fundamental. I mean, your passion
0: uh, is almost jumping out of the screen on that one and, uh, and, and I can see why. I mean, certainly and uh, our, our military uh, listeners, certainly our army listeners will, um, will resonate with what you're saying about the regimental system and the power of the story that comes through the regimental system. And as you say, as you're referring to earlier on, uh, narratives ultimately create identities as well, and, you know, and, and our regimental systems are a part of who we are. And, and as you rightly identify, people go to extraordinary events and um, uh, as a result of um, those, those rich ties and that, that, that identity. Musing, as you were saying, as you were talking there about uh, COP26 starting today, and I wondered how much the narratives are going to resonate and are they, are they going to align with a strategy that's needed to, to get us where we need, need well, to be? Well, that,
1: that's, a, that's a very good question because I think the narrative, the climate change narrative has changed and has become more resonant and has become more sticky, and people are buying into it. And one would argue, you know, for instance, I would say quite bluntly that the insulate Britain people are hugely damaging to the environmental narrative mm. because the the middle group of people who need to be persuaded that they need to um do more are hugely annoyed by these people and in a way they're a very good example it doesn't matter whether you're right it doesn't matter whether you're wrong it doesn't matter whether you're passionate when you're telling a narrative the first thing you need to think is not to persuade yourself it's other people you need to persuade Let, move moving back to nato
0: then what are the challenges of conducting strategic communications in
1: nato what are their specific challenges well, I think the same challenge is for any hierarchical organization. Um, my nickname was Mr. Stratcom. Mm. I was pushing water uphill for quite a long time. Machiavelli has a quote about there's nothing harder to do than to change um, the order of things, because the people who benefit fight hard to keep it, and the people who might benefit, you're asking them to trust something that's not yet happened. Which is a very profound insight so organizations tend to only change when failure is obvious so the first thing that really got us moving in nato was to see the narrative problems we had in in the, the stracon problems we had in afghanistan where we had all the toys and they had all the words and that That was the kickoff point to move from communications to Stratcom. A lot of it then was going around trying to build up support, almost person by person, speaking to people who've been there, coming up with a vision to translate, listening to people, compromising, but then also speaking to the bosses. But the other thing was to have your own personal village. Vision. I hope it doesn't sound arrogant, but I I pushed change from the bottom. The NATO policy followed the policy at shape, which I myself and a couple of others wrote. In other words, we created NATO's policy from underneath. So passionate people with a strong sense of vision and policy and coherence, because we were coherent, sticking with the issue can affect change. And that's exactly what happened to NATO. We created change from underneath. Not unfairly, we didn't sneak it through. We made the arguments, we built up the critical mass, we found the people, we argued with our bosses, swayed at our bosses. We went through all the processes and at no stage could anyone say you're being sneaky. But by God, we pushed. What you then is that there's a tendency for the lowest common denominator. And, of course, lowest common denominator is pretty low, whereas George Robertson, always used to say, he was always going for the highest common denominator. Um, and what he meant by that was, of course, you never got everything you want, but you're always trying to crank it up another notch, crank it up another notch. And that means go to the countries involved. You know, reach out. Again, what you're trying to do is not impose your vision. You're trying to get other people to share it. And that, that's what we did at NATO. So it was to spread the vision, not drive it through.
0: I, I guess in some ways you part answered my next question um, it, by talking about listening and, and, and compromising. But um, we, we, we've spoken on previous podcasts about the challenges of leading a multinational team within a multinational organisation such as NATO. Um, and the multinational environment arguably requires a subtly different approach to deal with different working methods, leadership styles, cultures, um, and obviously language barriers et all. How how do you specifically address these issues?
1: Well, I I think the difference is one of degree rather than fundamentals. It's hierarchical organisations are very good places for people who don't want to do something to hide as well. I'm very aware in, you know, I could give examples but one in the British military where top level guidance is not being followed through. Because it's too far down the chain. You know, while the cat's away, the mice will play. So nobody should kid themselves that all of the militaries are saying, oh, the boss says this, so I'll do it. They ain't. And if you think they are, you're kidding yourself. Um, it's even easier in NATO because you have dis- disparate authorities. Um, The fact is, is that your promotion doesn't depend on NATO, it depends on your nation and so on. And so it's quite easy to hide, which is why it's much more important to bring people along. But the other thing you need to do is at some point you need to get the bosses to intervene. It's amazing the effect that can happen with one people having a non-career enhancing interview and then the word being spread. One interview without coffee, which everybody knows about, can, can be there. So what I always to try to do, first thing, you need a coherent vision. You need to know what you want. You need to find allies. You need to identify the blockers. You need to argue with them. If necessary, you need to isolate them. But all the time, you've got to also be looking up at certain points in NATO, we needed a four-star to intervene. And when we got the four-star to intervene, it broke the jams. So one of the things I would say to senior leaders is don't keep saying, this isn't my business. I expect my three-star or my two-star or one-star to deal with it. Very often, at a critical point, the four-star needs to reach down and say, this is the way, do it. Um, and that's almost every breakthrough we've had has followed a one year hiatus when we couldn't get the top leadership to intervene. So it's a multi-layered approach, but I never, ever forgot. I have to get the thing implemented. So I was always trying to build up the thing. And most people, let, let's be honest, most people want leadership. Most people And I don't mean this badly. Most people want to follow. So if you have a clear, coherent, well-argued, passionate, because it's emotional view, you will get people on your side. And then they've got to trust you. And that trust comes from being somebody they can morally respect. Have you got their back? I got people to do stuff um, ahead of agreement. When the policy was still unsorted, when there was still a lot of gray, I told people, you do this, and if somebody comes in and says there's trouble, refer them to me, because the lines of authority were fairly gray. And so the people often pushed the edge of the envelope, knowing that if they were called to order, that I would come in behind them and take the blame. And that gave them a feeling of confidence.
0: Listen to your answer there, knowing what the next question is going to be, specifically on Afghanistan, and, you, and you've, um, you've alluded to it a couple of times. And, and clearly, this is a conflict you know well, having served three ISAF tours yourself as a NATO spokesman and media advisor to the ISAF commander. And I should mention, for your service in Afghanistan, you were awarded NATO's Meritorious Service Medal. What went wrong for NATO in Afghanistan? It's slightly correct. What went
1: wrong for us, the big us? It went wrong for NATO, but it wasn't just NATO. Mm-hmm. Because remember, ISAF's got a lot of non-NATO nations, and also nations were involved before NATO was involved, and also nations had independent parts. So there's NATO's nations and NATO at the institution. So it went wrong for a lot of people, mm-hmm. including big time NATO. Um I think the first thing was I, I'm a I'm still a believer we could have won. I I don't accept defeat was inevitable. There's strong arguments to say we could never have won. I just don't think they're strong enough. I think there are better arguments why we could have won. I think we started off that we've always had a poor narrative in that we never understood the Afghans. We never understood how to persuade the Afghans. And there's both the big meta-narrative thing, which we never really properly engage with them. And then there's the technical thing. So I, even at the end, our Pashto and Dari outreach was pathetic. You know, we were speaking, literally not speaking the same language to Afghans for almost the entire conflict, as well as very often metaphorically not the same language. We got our strategy wrong at the beginning. Um, I think we one of the things that you find in a counterinsurgency is that keeping ground, both cognitively and in real terms, is much easier than regaining it. And we did not use our time well in the first few years. Um, We should have put more people in, more sensitively. I think we could have done a lot more wedge driving with the Taliban early on, which we failed to do. Um, and then our intelligence assessments were very poor. When we went, when, when ISAF-9 went in, the year before, I saw intelligence assessments basically saying that, it's, that we don't have a terrorist problem, it's bandit country. There was an insurgency growing underneath our feet, which we did not predict. Massive intelligence failure. Then in 2006, we had far too small forces. If we had really hammered the Taliban in the south after Operation Medusa, really, we could have made a big difference. But we kept letting them resurge. And Stan was the one who made the point that the insur- we grew with the insurgency and we never got past it. And I think Iraq, whatever you think of Iraq, Iraq was a diversion from the forces we needed in Afghanistan. If you look at the number of soldiers we put in in Bosnia, in I-4, and then compare it to the number of forces we had in for a far bigger country and a far tougher situation, you're thinking, Again, whiskey, tango, foxtrot. What were we thinking? Mm. And there's a lot of blame to go around. In if speaking specifically about the British and Helmand, we went in there with the troops we could get, not the troops we needed. And if we had had twice the number of troops at the beginning, we wouldn't have needed four times the number much later on. So there, there's a big strategic issues there in strategic communication terms, our strategic communications, we learned, but too late. We have very poor siops, very poor info ops. We had no cultural understanding. The staff we were putting in were often incredibly well motivated, but completely unsuited to the task because they were badly trained. There weren't enough of them. After in 2008, Uh, No, 2010 onwards, the people who were one-star leaders of the ISAF communication efforts, not one of them was a professional. We're surprised we have a problem. You know, hey, Mark, here's an F-16. Off you go. I mean, this is basic stuff, and we still haven't learned it. So there is no one thing that went wrong in Afghanistan. But there's a lot that did. And I wrote, I wrote some private notes to our private office in my first term uh, in 2006 when I said that we have put NATO's credibility on a government that we cannot guarantee will make it run the course. So right in 2006, and I'd been there a month. Now, I say that not because I was a lonely person going, oh, my God, but because I was one of many people who said that. I wouldn't have dared said that if I hadn't been able to validate it through my own research. with people. So many points where you could have done a term. So it's not a simple answer, I'm sorry, but we could have done it. We could have done it.
0: I mean, your last point there. there is not a simple answer. I think um, we live in an age where people want an answer in 140 characters and something as complex as uh, 20 plus years in Afghanistan, you can't possibly boil it down. Um, so uh, no, I mean, uh, a very credible answer. If I could just come back on one point right at the beginning, you said you believe um, Afghanistan could be one. Is the challenge, is, is the difficulty not the fact that there is, there was no coherence Uh, an agreement on what winning might actually look like.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, at one level there was, in that the NATO strategic plan for Afghanistan was, summing it up, was to hold the ring until the Afghan government was strong enough to prevent it becoming a home for terrorism. In other words, we were there To produce a level of stability and capability to prevent al-Qaeda and others ruling again. Now, you know, it may sound harsh. We weren't there to educate women. We weren't there to educate boys. We weren't there to do a lot of the things which we sold it on. We sold it on making Afghanistan a nice place to some degree. And I spoke to foreign and defense ministers who told me they perfectly understood that the real reason we were there was stability, but they could not sell stability. So they they were part of the lie, because the lie is when you know it's wrong. They were part of the lie that we were trying to transform Afghanistan. And there was a disconnect between the military plan, which was hold the ring, do the fighting until the Afghan government can take, until the Afghan military can take over and it's stable enough to win. And the aspirations were even quite recently, were saying, well, it wasn't that bad on Afghanistan because we educated X million people. Well, we lost. The reason we were there was quite clear in the military strategy and the attempt the incoherence came because we were trying to do something else it's funny one of the statements that people make is we weren't we shouldn't have been trying to turn afghanistan into switzerland in one way we should have been because switzerland was a is a very loose federation and not that long ago was a confederation part of the problem in afghanistan was we tried to produce a centralized government. In a country that's never had one and couldn't couldn't have one. Whereas what we should have been doing was allowing what had always worked in Afghanistan, which is a very loose hand at the center, and letting the other people work within certain limitations. So if we'd gone for a Swiss-style constitution, we might have done better. Now there's an irony for you. And we have people who, frankly, should hang their head in shame, but are still out there pontificating about this. The constitution we imposed was one of the reasons we got this wrong.
0: Uh, a fascinating discussion. i one, if I hit you with one more question on Afghanistan before we move to our quick fire questions. Uh, and that is, what do you think are the, the short shorter, long-term implications for NATO as a result
1: of um, uh, the, the, the Afghan campaign? I think, I think they're bad. How bad they are, I'm genuinely not sure of. I mean, clearly, NATO has failed. Um, I don't think, curiously, NATO as an institution has got the reputational hit that NATO nations have got. So in one sense, the institution might come out less damaged than the nations. But one of the oddities is that the nations populace's, haven't cared that much. So I think that the judgments that people are making are, they're bad, but they're not being punched home. I think the implications for the West, let's call it that, are really bad. I think the Chinese, the Russians, terrorists, they're looking at this and they're saying, a bunch of Taliban defeated them, we can defeat them. Terrorists will be hugely encouraged, China will be encouraged, Russia will be encouraged. So I think the implications for NATO, NATO nations, the rules-based international order are very, very bad indeed. I think they're bad in the short term and I think they're bad in the long term.
0: Thank you very much. Um, We're going to close, as we traditionally do, with our quick-fire questions, uh, Mark. So first off, who's the best leader you've ever known or worked with and why?
1: I'd have to say the best leader I've worked with is Lord Robertson. I don't know what he'd be like in combat, because that's not it, but his ability to drive consensus in NATO and get big things done was extraordinary. You know, he got us in, he he got the Macedonia situation sorted out. He got the Article 5 sorted out. He, the Prague summit was what a high watermark for NATO. And he understood Stratcom. So I, I would say, the best one I've worked with was Lord Robertson.
0: Most inspirational leader
1: from history and why? Um, I'd have to say Churchill. Um, And because I'm partly because I'm a, um, you know, I'm a strategic communicator and I challenge anyone to say, to find anyone who has inspired through communication better. Now, he's a very fallible man. I'm very aware of his leadership failings in other respects, but any strategic communicator would have to say, how can you beat Churchill? And of course I'm British.
0: I I wouldn't have expected anyone less than you, Mark. Uh, Most valuable leadership lesson you have learned? The the combination
1: of speaking truth to power, the moral courage to speak up. um, That's, I've seen so many disasters. So, and I I recently had the honour of getting a um, honorary PhD from York University and I had to do a little speech and in my acceptance remarks, I said, speaking up will be the mark of you. It'll be the mark of you, not just as a leader, but the mark of you as a person.
0: With hindsight, what would you tell a young Mark lady about leadership and communications?
1: One, don't be afraid to speak up. It's something you need to learn. And the other one is, listen, I'm, you know, without being arrogant, I'm a natural communicator. Therefore, shutting up occasionally is something that I could have done with a lot more. And actually, I've learned a lot over the last 10 years when most people are beginning to ossify because I finally learned the lesson. So it took me until my mid-50s to do something that somebody that, I wish I could have done in my mid-20s.
0: And final question, what's the greatest strategic communication
1: challenge that NATO faces in the future? I I would, you'd expect me to say the external challenge, which are huge, but I would say the internal challenge is that NATO didn't used to have to worry about its internal nations, internal stuff. We could live with the Greek colonels and so on. We could live with the Turkish military gun because the external threat from Russia was so existential. The perfect was the enemy of the good. Our narrative now is that we represent not just our nation's borders, but our nation's values and and a system, the rules based international order. We have countries within NATO who are whose commitment to that is erratic, let's say. It makes it very difficult for us to be credible when we cannot look to ourselves and see nations that are living up to the standards that we say we aspire to. And I think that then goes externally because it's very hard to say to the Russians and the Chinese, these are the values we live to and these are the values you should do and these are the things we're going to do if they can then look back and say, you're a hypocrite. So the internal challenge to live up to our values is the biggest internal challenge in, and in the biggest threat we have.
0: Well, Mark, it's very evident why you're such an effective communicator. Um, your, your narratives and your passion shine through, and it's been an absolute privilege listening to you today and also learning from you. Mark, thank you very much indeed for joining
1: thank us. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed that very honest and engaging discussion as much as I did. I was struck at the very beginning when Mark described his formative years and how through his mother and father, his education and his environment, that he learned the importance of a strong moral foundation of one's values and of duty and service, and where he gained his thirst and dedication for lifelong learning, to which he remains committed today. Reflecting on his time as a defense correspondent in the 1990s, Mark spoke about the significant changes that took place in journalism at the time. From a tradition of reporting facts, to reporting emotional narratives, but also the advent of 24-hour news and how this created inevitable tensions between being first to a story and first to the truth. Moving to strategic communications, which Mark described as a systematic approach to incorporating communication into our overall effect. He said you cannot win without information on your side. But whilst this is well understood, he argued, Its implementation is less assured. And I think increasingly in this age of constant competition, the advantage is going to be with those who both understand the importance of communication, of shaping the narrative, and can successfully implement it. Mark also gave his sage advice to any advisor. Take yourself out of the game, he said. It is not about you. Advisors are there to tell their bosses what they need to hear not what they want to hear. And as a result, good advisors, he argued, have strong moral courage and humility. At a time when such a theme is topical in the British Army, Mark posed several pertinent questions. Does your system train and encourage people to speak up? What are the consequences of speaking up? And how do you create the conditions for decision makers to listen? And he urged the importance of training leadership to respectfully and forcefully speak up which he argues goes right to the top as senior generals. We also spoke about the issue of narratives, to which Mark is evidently very passionate. Ultimately, he said, it is through narratives that people connect. It is how we influence. He also talked about it in relation to identities, which I thought was illuminating. We are living narratives all of the time, he said. And of course, in the British Army, as Mark illustrated, narrative and storytelling sits at the heart of our collective identities, most commonly expressed through our regimental system, a powerful tool for creating cohesion, ethos, and of course, our fighting spirit. If you want to persuade somebody, he said, tell them a story that makes them sing and dance. And finally to Afghanistan, for which Mark gave an informed and very candid perspective as to what he believes went wrong, not just for NATO, but for the international community more broadly, and indeed its wider implications. Acknowledging that it was and is a very complex affair, arguing there was no one thing that went wrong in Afghanistan, but there is a lot that did. Well worth a listen. If you like what you've heard today, please do subscribe to our podcast. Please also share and comment, that would be much appreciated. For more information on leadership in the British Army, do visit our website, Centre for Army Leadership, and of course follow us on our social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn.